We're looking this morning at Luke chapter 22, something like our 76th or 77th sermon in Luke's gospel. We're just journeying through. So I will begin reading in verse 24. Just follow along. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. But he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Free to have your seats. I owe another thank you, not just to those who came early and set up, but another thank you to, um, and and I should say it's a thank you and an apology, a thank you to the group of men who uh, came to meet and fire this past Friday evening at Steve's house. We worked meticulously on a great illustration this morning, an introduction to this sermon that I'm not using. I had to cut it. So we're just going to jump right into our text this morning, right there in big red letters, you should see this statement, that life in the kingdom of God is often the opposite of how the world thinks. We're going to see three ways that that's true, which are my three points this morning, corresponding to the three paragraphs we're looking at, but this is one of the big themes of Luke. One of the the focal points of this gospel is that following Jesus, life in the kingdom, is often the reverse, the exact opposite of how the world thinks. And most of the time, and as we'll see this morning, it's probably opposite or reverse of how you naturally think. Life in the kingdom is the reverse of our natural inclination, our natural way of thinking. And so we're gonna see again three ways that that is true, I think. But I'm also gonna do something very strange this morning. You should see three points in my outline. We're going to do point one, followed by point three, and then point two and spend most of our time on the second point. And so we're going to move quickly through these first ones, largely because they're already themes that we have hit 
and hit heavily in Luke's gospel. But I think that there's super soul-edifying, life-sustaining words in that second point that I have for us, that middle paragraph, verses 31 through 34. So the first thing I want us to see, the first way in which life in the kingdom of God is opposite of how the world thinks, is verses 24 through 30. The one who serves is truly great. That's pressing against the way the world thinks. That is, that the true great one is the one who is served. The manager, the leader, the CEO, the president, the king, the big shot. Life in the kingdom is opposite. The greatest is the lowliest. The first, last. The last will be first. The one who serves is truly great. In verse 24, it begins, a dispute also arose among them. We're not exactly sure. This is the, 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 the 12 disciples. Um, there's a couple logical possibilities. Um, the first one being Jesus has been talking about going away. He's going to die, rise again, and ascend to the throne, the very right hand of God the Father. He's going away. Logically, who's going to lead this band of Christians? They weren't even called Christians. They were called the way, the people following the way of Jesus. Who's the leader? They're possibly arguing about that. Or following on the, the heels of what we looked at last week, you may recall, the institution of the Lord's Supper, as it's called. Jesus taking the Passover meal and giving it new meaning in him. The bread being his body given for you, his blood being poured out, the new covenant in his blood. But then he says these words. This is how he ended last week. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that guy. We know it looking back with perfect vision 2020 that that's Judas. They didn't know. The text tells us explicitly in all the accounts, who, who's he talking about? We all look like super Christians from the outside. Somebody's going to betray him? We, we're not sure who. They, they could be arguing actually about that. And the way you argue about who's not going to betray Jesus is talk about how great of a disciple you are. And so they're arguing. But Jesus says, you got it all wrong. The kings of the Gentiles, that is the, the world, exercises authority a certain way. Climb the ladder, be the most important, be the leader, be served. And Jesus says, not so with me. Now, authority structures are important. I'm not saying don't be a manager and... Whatever. I'm saying in the kingdom of God, following the way of Jesus, true greatness is marked by spending your life, your resources, your energy, your gifts for others. What we called service, being a servant. Think of the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 3. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, word, word made flesh. He must increase, I must decrease. Or this makes complete sense when we remember Jesus' own words. Why did Jesus come? Mark 10, verse 45, captures this really well. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be a servant, to serve others. Those following Jesus, following the way of Jesus, will likewise be marked out by a servant's heart. By spending your life, your energy, serving other people. There's a number of ways in which this can play itself out, but I just want to apply it to one way that it might be important for us to think this way, to become the youngest, the leader as one who serves. And that is what I call presence. It's very hard to be a servant when you are not around 
We're going to talk about this a little bit more in our text because I think it's one of the main things Jesus is going at here. But it's important if you are to be a servant to be here. It's not a ploy of one of your pastors to get you to come to church. We're going to see why I'm arguing for that in a moment. But being at church, being in community group, making church priorities, church outings important in your life is one of the best ways that you're going to see opportunities to serve your brothers and sisters and to serve your neighbors around you, being present. So let's look at a second way, which is actually point three. I told you we're going to move quickly. And that is that that kingdom life includes preparation for whatever suffering and persecution comes our way. I get this from verses 35 through 38, and we're going to move very quickly through this one. But the, the aspect of our world, our society, our cultural moment right now that this is pressing against is that we don't want suffering. We don't need suffering. Everything in our life, from the marketing that we see on TV to the billboards that we drive by, are please yourself. Avoid hardship. Avoid suffering. All of life should be pleasure. We're all naturally hedonists in that sense. Actually, uh, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their book, Good Faith, Being Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, do a poll, and they found out this, that 86% of Americans believe that to enjoy oneself, you must pursue the things you desire most. Or, 84% of Americans who believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. If that's true, and you could do a Christian spin on it, right? Finding your highest joy in life, that is, in God, who is the highest joy. But using their words, just basic hedonism, if that's true, where does suffering fit? Where does hardship fit? Something that Jesus and the apostles talked about on almost every page of Scripture. Kingdom life is pressing against our world's notion that the only thing that matters is your pleasure, your safety. We're saving. We're we're guarding ourselves against all possibilities of harm and suffering and persecution, and yet it's a real part of kingdom life. And it's often too late to begin preparing for suffering once you're in suffering. One of the greatest things we can do is have a robust biblical theology of suffering. Preparation for when those things come our way because kingdom life includes preparation for whatever suffering, whatever persecution comes our way. Now, why do I get this from verses 35 through 38? Just very briefly, this is exactly what Jesus is telling them to do. You've heard these words before probably, sending you out, knapsack, money bag, um, cloak, sandals. That's because we've seen it two other times in Luke. Way back when, before COVID, so it seems like, 10 years ago, Um, in Luke 9, and then in Luke 10. Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. They're way up north in the land of Galilee, far from Jerusalem where Jesus is now, and he sends out the 12 with the authority to cast out demons, with the, the miracles to heal and preach the gospel, and he tells them, go out, don't bring anything. Rely on the hospitality of those to whom you're preaching, just go. He does the same thing in Luke chapter 10, but this time not just with the 12, but with the 72, or some manuscripts say the 70. Sends them out again, don't take anything, just just get. Rely on the hospitality of others, preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the diseased and the sick. 
So what's happening here? Sending them out, this time, pack it all. Load your backpack. Get ready. What's going on here is a change in what we would call redemptive history. Something is different now. Jesus is going to die for sins and rise again. He's going to ascend to the right hand of his Father, but he's going to send out his apostles to change the world. And you're not coming back. You're not coming back this time. There's no hospitality you're going to find, likely. So load up a backpack, get ready, and go. Something is different now. So that's what's going on here. Prepare. You're going to encounter suffering. You're going to encounter pressure. You're going to encounter persecution. So get ready. It's different now. Okay? So that's what's going on here. And the big thing that it's pressing against in our world is preparation for when suffering, pressure, hardship, maybe even persecution comes our way. There's a quote in there from a commentator on Luke's gospel by the name of Daryl Bach who says everything that I just said and proves it with better words. So read that and we'll move on to what I think is, could be one of the most helpful things we get this morning. That is my second point, which is my third point. <clears throat> Perseverance is a team sport. The aspect of our society and this current cultural moment in which we find ourselves is that your perseverance, your personhood, your endurance and faith only relies on you. Individualism, the idol of self, you do you. All that matters is me, myself, and I. Our world preaches that and teaches it, and you probably actually think it. And so I think what Jesus is going to show us here in verses 31 through 34 is that that's silly. That perseverance, for you to make it to glory, it's a team sport, a community project. So let me prove that to you. To use um, the words of John Piper, this should also be in your insert. I can't improve on this, so I just want to read it to you. If you love God and are called according to his purpose, if you are despairing of your own resources and looking to Christ for hope, then to you belongs a most wonderful promise. Jesus prays for you. And he will never let Satan destroy your faith and bring you to ruin. Can I get an amen? Jesus prays for you. We're going to explore this topic in more detail in just a moment, but just let that sink in. Sometimes you don't even pray for you. The God of the world made flesh, eternal Son of God, Son of Man, takes time to pray for you. Again, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I want, to see, I want us to see four things from verses 31 through 34. The first is the, the enemy, the antagonist of the story, Satan, the accuser or the adversary, literally. Elsewhere called the devil, the slanderer or accuser. Um, John, in his uh, apocalyptic vision of revelation, writing about things with robust images and, and um, pictures, says this in Revelation 12, 9, talking about Jesus coming into the world, Christmas. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
the deceiver of the whole world. This is, this is who we're talking about here, devil, Satan, the great dragon. Did you catch it? That ancient serpent. Harkening back to Genesis chapter 3, the one who ushered in sin, who, who ushered in the fall by tempting and teasing our original parents with, did God really say? little biography here. If you're a note taker, jot these down. We're going to move quickly. John 16, 11, Satan is the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, the devil is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That changes the way you see your unbelieving co-workers. They're not just rebellious. They're blind because the devil is covering their eyes. Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air at work in the lives of the sons of disobedience of which we were a part before meeting Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26 tells us that Satan lays a snare to capture people and do his will. The gospel writers over and over again tells us that he leads demons that can torment people. Last week, 22, verse 3 of, of Luke's gospel, that Satan provokes evil actions, provokes evil thoughts. Job, chapter 1, tells us he causes natural disasters. Peter uses these words, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You think you've got a chance? He's the God of this world. That's who we're talking about. That was the first thing I wanted you to see. But secondly, going right along, this is what I also want you to see. In our text in verse 31, what did Satan want? Satan demanded to have you, but I, verse 32. This is reminiscent of the opening chapters of Job. Job 1 and Job chapter 2. If you haven't read those chapters, they're weighty, they're confusing at times. But they, they carry the idea that Satan and Job comes before God and says, you think Job, your servant, is faithful? Let me have some time with him. I'll tear him up. I'll make his life a living, quite literally, a living hell. And he'll, 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 rebu- he'll turn from you. Yahweh, God, you'll be a thing of the past. Just let me have a chance at Job. And strangely, God says, okay, go for it. Gives Satan permission. Now, we know the story. Job doesn't. Job trusts in the Lord. It's a great story. But here's what I want us to see. Here and in the Job passage, Satan demanded to have you, Simon. What I want us to see is that God alone is ultimate. What I mean by that is we don't, we don't have a worldview. The Bible doesn't give us a worldview of dualism, that God and Satan are equal powers, duking it out. They're, they're equal but rivals in power. And it's like, who's going to win, darkness or light? Oh, no. The Bible tells us over and over again, God alone is ultimate, not Satan. But don't forget the bio I just gave you. The devil does have great Great, great power, but it is derivative. He has to ask. Satan has mighty strength, mighty power in this world 
all by permission, never out of control. Let me say that again. And, and I'm, I'm saying, and I'm holding up what I just told you about the biography of the Satan, the God of the world, mighty in strength and power in this world, but all by permission, never out of control. You can take that to the bank. The third thing I wanted us to see, just hold on, I know this is kind of weird, <clears throat> is the sifting of the disciples. And I didn't just say there the sifting of Peter. Let me show you something. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. That's the pre-Christian name for Peter. Scholars usually believe here that Jesus is reverting to calling Peter Simon, the name he had before Jesus, because you're acting like a pre-Christian, an unbeliever. You're reverting back to your old self, Simon. But here's what I wanted you to see, not that. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, circle it, you. Why? Because it's plural. He's talking about all the disciples. Satan demanded to have y'all. But Simon, I prayed for you. Did Jesus pray for the other disciples? Yeah, but not in the same way. Simon, I'm going to let the devil have you a little bit. He's going to get you. You're going to deny before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. The devil is going to get you. The roaring lion's going to bite. But you will not utterly fail. We'll get to that in a second. So what, what I want us to see here is what Satan is trying to do to sift you like wheat. I'm the opposite of a farmer. Just nothing. I have no idea about wheat or anything. I had to read a lot about it today or this week. But this carries with it um, the idea of sifting with a sieve or like a modern day, think of like a strainer. What are those called? A strainer good? We good with that? put stuff in, it comes out the bottom, and you have the good stuff left. But in, the, in that day and age, a sieve was what you sifted wheat with. Wheat would go in, it was jagged, it was sharp, it had little holes, and you would grind, shake the wheat so that the bad stuff would come out the bottom, and all you were left with was the yummy stuff, the good stuff. In, in Satan's sieve analogy, sifting like wheat, he wants to take you, he wants to take me and put us in a sieve that is sharp and you didn't want to be in and grind you up, shake you up so that you as an unbeliever come out and your faith is left. And Satan says, gotcha. Satan demanded to have y'all. Peter, he's going to get you. You're going to deny me, but you won't ultimately make a shipwreck of your faith. He demanded to have you. And what's crazy and impactful for us is to ask the question, how does Satan sift. How does he do this? This is still the enemy's ultimate desire for you, to sift you like wheat. And Peter, we'll read about it in like 20-some verses, he uses uh, fear. Peter's fear of being lumped in with Jesus and maybe going to the cross just like Jesus, afraid of the people around him, of the fear of man. He did not, I don't know him, mm -mm. But how, how does Satan do this today? If he does want your faith, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I just jotted some things down. What we talked about already, suffering. If suffering will get you to come out as an unbeliever and your faith stays up here for Satan to play with, he's going to send suffering your way. Maybe it's doubt. If doubt will get you, 
then by golly, he's going he's gonna to make you doubt. You're not worthy. Did God really say? That's the original temptation. You're not good enough. You're not going to make it. You're not worthy. Is God really there? Does he really exist? Preacher man just talked about a dragon. <laughs> Stupid. That can't be real. Maybe it's disease. He's going to send it your way. If it will be the means by which he can sift you and get rid of you and your faith. Depart your faith from you. Maybe let me use Luke's gospel a little bit. Maybe, maybe, this is scary, maybe he's going to use wealth. Maybe he's going to use wealth, your security, your stuff, your possessions to make you think like, I got it. And all the while, Satan is sifting you, grinding you up. Maybe he's going to use, and this is what was challenging to me, a disbelief in the unseen realm. The moment you start thinking everything can be scientifically explained, psychologically explained, sociologically explained, anthropologically, anthropology, you are done. The unseen realm doesn't exist. Everything is just right here. The imminent frame, I can explain everything by what I can touch, sense, and feel. You are getting sifted. The unseen realm is there. Maybe it's your pride and self-sufficiency. You put yourself in the center of the universe, the only place that Jesus alone can actually be. You are getting sifted. Like wheat. Maybe most challenging. Maybe it's your individualism. Lack of community. Our society's idol of self. Harkening back to that uh, little poll I referenced earlier, 91% of Americans affirm the statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. That's nine out of ten of us. The anthropologist Paul Hybert says this, the dominant religion in the West, that's us, is one in which the self has become God and self-fulfillment our salvation. Individualism, the idol of self. All that matters is you. Think rightly, have enough control, self-control, train yourself, disciple yourself. You, 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 all you need is you. Know yourself. You are getting sifted by the devil. Maybe it's anxieties and fear. I want to tread lightly on this one because there's a number of reasons for anxiety and fear. Some of them explained in the world of medicine, but I think we would be naive to think the enemy couldn't be at work sometimes. Sifting you like wheat. But, this is where we're going to get good. Satan won't ultimately conquer the faith of believers and lead them to ruin. Why? Verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays for you. This is maybe a neglected doctrine in the church today. It's called the heavenly intercession of Christ, if you want to sound cool at your dinner party this Friday. And I get it from Hebrews 7. You can read about it here. You can read about it in John 17, Jesus praying for his people. But look at Hebrews 7, 25 in your insert. Consequently, Jesus, our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost, that is ultimately, completely, finally, those who draw near to God through him, since 
he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch it? He is able to save completely, all the way, fully, finally, everyone and anyone who draws near to God through Jesus because Jesus always lives, right now, always, to pray for you. Time out. If you're a theologian, you're thinking, well, Taylor, does that mean somehow that the atonement is left incomplete? We talk about it a lot here, justification by faith alone. We're united to Jesus by faith, right, brothers and sisters? Everything that can be said of Jesus can be said of you. You are forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future because of faith in Christ and his finished work alone, amen, and amen. There is nothing left unfinished in the atonement. But don't forget that Jesus didn't climb the steps of his throne and sit down at the right hand of the Father and now lets you work it all out for yourself. He's still working on your behalf. He is praying for your faith, praying against the enemy and the unseen realm around you right now. Jesus is. Because our perseverance in faith, our holding on to Jesus, running the, the race of the Christian life, requires a continual supply of power, a power that Jesus is praying for you. To use the one illustration of a Christian writer, picture a glider pulled up to the sky by an airplane, soon to be released to float down to the earth. We are the glider. Christ is the plane, but he never disengages. He never lets go, wishing us well, hoping we can glide the rest of the way into heaven. He carries us all the way. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is praying for you, praying for your faith, praying for your perseverance. Jesus prays for you. I wonder what might happen in our souls if we heard the voice of our Savior Jesus Christ praying for you in the other room. What that might do to bolster your faith and confidence in him in the face of pressure, persecution, COVID-19. Jesus praying for you. That's good news. Even the thought of it calms me in the midst of our anxieties and pressures of this world. The last thing I want us to see from these verses, it's not just the awesome reality and truth that Jesus prays for us, but I want us to see the means by which we keep believing. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And recall, Peter's faith does fail. So what's Jesus talking about? He's saying you won't fail utterly, ultimately. You won't apostatize, make shipwreck of your life. But look what happens next. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. Does it say, and if you turn? If you come back, if, if you repent, Peter. When you repent, Pete, strengthen the brothers. Why? Jesus' prayers always work. Jesus' prayers are always answered. This is what we call the sovereign win. You're going you're gonna to deny me. Your faith's going to fail. I've prayed for you, Peter. When you repent, strengthen the boys. Strengthen the brothers and sisters. You're going to. I prayed for you. You're going to repent. And once Peter repents, he is to strengthen the other disciples. That's what I wanted you to see. 
God strengthens our faith in a number of ways, guys. You've probably experienced this. Maybe a, a camp or Christian conference experience. Maybe it's in the early hours of the morning that you have gotten up to, to read and study the scriptures to hear God's voice. He strengthens you. Before you go about your day to the gym or the, your job or whatever you're doing in the morning, you get up early and you study the Bible. It's one way the Lord strengthens you. Maybe it's at night as you're praying or thinking of through a psalm before you lay your head down and doze off into unconsciousness and trust him to wake you up again. He strengthens you. But most of the time, most of the time, he strengthens your faith. He keeps you trusting in him, holding on to him by faith most of the time through the words and encouragement of other people. The words and encouragement of other Christians. Going back to my point that perseverance is a team sport. It's a community project. The words of Hebrews chapter 3, which has become really near and dear to my heart, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear it? I need you to make it through life, and you need me. You're not going to make it alone. I need you to make it to glory. You need me to keep believing. Look at the person on your right and say, I need you. I know I always hated it when the preacher made me do this too, but it's good. Look at the person on your left. I need you. You just said some of the most true words you've said this morning. You're not going to make it on your own. God, in his wisdom and providence and goodness, has designed that we keep on keeping on in this life through the help of other Christians speaking into your life. The giving and receiving of life-sustaining words. You're not an island. We're not meant to be solo. We're not meant to live this lie of self by being our own ultimate meaning makers. We're fine on our own. That's what our world, the world is saying. Let me show you the Christian spin on it. All I need is me and my Bible. That's the Christian lie of the pagan world. Me and my Bible at home on my bed is all I need to be a Christian. I can do it. You can't. Every metaphor for the church for you is corporate. You need others, the, the person you just said that to. That's why membership and involvement in a local church is so important. One, one last quote for you. A cultural commentator writes this. It's no coincidence, listen to this, that the rise of the gospel of autonomous self-making and individualism since the 60s corresponds with a crescendo of brokenness. Oh, I love it. Listen to this. From the 1960s to the turn of the 21st century, America doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quadrupled its prison population. We're just getting started. Sex tuppled out of wedlock births, septupled. You know what that was? Septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which has been established as a significant predictor 
of divorce. There's no coincidence. There, there, there is a co- it's not a coincidence. There is a correspondence to the rise of you do you, live your life, all that matters is your individual self and that. And the church sometimes looks more like that than community and family. Christians, we, we need other people in our lives to link arms with us. In this local church, in your life, other brothers and sisters of faith who link arms with us and say, I'm not going to make it through this life without you, so come on, I'm holding on to you. Even if I've got to carry you for a little bit, that's fine, because you're going to need to carry me here in a little bit. But we're not going to make it alone. You think that for one moment, you are sifted. Bye-bye. Faith left. Satan gets his way. So do you have this? You, you, you were never meant to do the Christian life on your own. Are you in community? Community groups at New City are a great way to fulfill this, but that's not the only way. Local church attendance. Is it a priority? Men, do you have brothers in your life that you get with and they know your sin patterns and struggles? Ladies, do you have other people in your life that you're meeting with and they know everything about you and they're praying for that everything that you haven't shared with many people? Do you have that kind of community? Peter, when you've turned, you will. I prayed for you. Strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, let's do that to one another. Strengthen one another. And as we do so, we can be upheld by this rock-solid foundation from John chapter 10, and this is what I'll close with. Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. I pray that you would just be with us now as we take practical steps to strengthen our faith and trust in you as we together, corporately as a family, nourish our faith through the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.